Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. It's not unusual to have something that we think of at the time is relatively minor and have it turn out later to be something rather major. A simple illustration that happens all the time is some fella meets a girl. He just happened to meet her. It wasn't love at first sight. Neither one of them thought much about the encounter at the time. But over time, they ended up getting married. We've all heard stories like that. So it was a, just a minor event in their lives when they first met, and it ended up being a major event. The same kind of thing happens when uh, in people have a minor thing happen and they end up getting a job that changes their life. The illustrations are endless. What is surprising is that God uses that very kind of thing to accomplish his will in the world. And that's the concept I want to talk about tonight. God uses that kind of thing. Theologians have a word for this. We don't hear it very much, but if you study theology, they will talk about the providence of God. The idea being that God works behind the scenes. The opposite of God working providentially is that God works supernaturally. It is dramatic, it is miraculous when he works supernaturally, but what is often missed is that God also uses natural means. He uses events that at the time you might think are relatively minor and end up to be major. There's a whole book in the Bible written about that. It's the book of Esther. The subject of that book is the providence of God. Another illustration of it is in Genesis chapter 41. And that's what I would like for us to look at tonight. When we last left Joseph, he was in jail. So as we open chapter 41, Joseph is in jail and he has been there some time. Now it is important, matter of fact it is imperative, that you know that he's in jail as you begin to read this chapter. And what happens is that Joseph goes from prisoner to prime minister overnight. And how that gets accomplished is the subject of providence and the point of this passage. So this is an illustration of how God used some relatively minor things in order to accomplish some great things. So with that in mind, let's look at the story in Genesis chapter 41. Now there are 57 verses in this chapter, so I figure, here we'll, I figure we'll be here for at least two hours. If I took one minute per verse, that would be two hours, right? Don't worry, it won't take that long. But it is a fascinating story, and it illustrates this one spiritual point about the providence of God. So let's start with verse 1. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. 
And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows, so Pharaoh awoke. All right, let's pause here for a second. What's going on here is relatively simple. It's self-evident, just reading the passage. But the significant thing is that it says, and it came to pass at the end of two full years. Now, the significance of that is that in chapter 40, Joseph landed in jail. So when it says, and it came to pass two full years, that means Joseph now has been in jail for two years, two full years. Now, that's not mentioned at this point. It comes up later in the passage. What the passage does is after making that little notation, says Pharaoh had a dream. And in the dream, um, he stood by the river. The river's not identified, but no doubt this is in Egypt, so it was probably the Nile. And what he sees are seven cows, and he describes them as good-looking and fat, in the river. Now, we know from sources outside the Bible that they were probably half-emerged in the river uh, so as to cool off and to keep the flies off. In his dream, Pharaoh saw these cows get out of the river and go up uh, and start grazing in the meadow. Then, in his dream, he saw seven more cows. They are described as ugly and gaunt, and the Hebrew word means thin. It's the direct opposite of fat. So what we have here is seven thin cows down by the river and seven fat cows over in the meadow. Now, so far, so good kind of thing he probably saw uh, in his real life when he was awake. What's interesting about this dream is the thin cows eat the fat cows. Now, in the first place, cows don't eat cows, they eat grass. So this is obviously an odd, unusual dream. It startled him. And the text says in verse 4, he woke up. Apparently, he went immediately back to sleep. So let's pick up the story in verse 5. Verse 4 says, so Pharaoh awoke. Verse 5 says, he slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, uh, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now, the second dream is similar to the first dream. Only this time, instead of cows, he sees grain. And he sees one stalk that has... Uh, a head on it that's plump and full. And then he sees, verse 6, a thin head that's been battered about by the east wind. And the seven thin heads ate the seven thick heads. So it's basically the same idea of the cows, only this time it's green, and in both cases it's seven and in both cases, the thin eats the fat. So he wakes up in the morning and thinks, what in the world does that mean? So being Pharaoh, he had resources. Verse 8, and it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. Actually, the Hebrew word means disturbed. He was more than curious. He was really disturbed by this dream. And he sent and called for all the magicians 
of Egypt and all the wise men, and Pharaoh told them the dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Now, uh, he calls uh, the wise men of Egypt. These men were probably astrologers. And they give him the dream. He gives them the dream, and they cannot interpret the dream. So he's now disturbed and on top of that, frustrated, because no one can tell him the interpretation of the dream. And let me pause here before we go any further in the story and just suggest that God gave him this dream. That's evident uh, as we dig into the story a little deeper. What I think is interesting is, and they couldn't understand it. The Bible teaches that unbelievers don't understand God's word, God's will, the way God works. They just don't understand it. They look at you with a blank stare and just can't imagine how God works. So that's what's going on. I'm not surprised. They were wise in this world, but dumb when it comes to the things of the Lord. So, Verse 9 says, Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. Now let's pause here for a second. Remember the story of the butler? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, a butler and a baker. And earlier in the book of Genesis, we are told that uh, Joseph was falsely accused of trying to molest Uh, Potiphar's wife, and he gets thrown in jail. And in jail, he meets the Pharaoh's butler and baker. And they had dreams, remember that? And Joseph, a fellow prisoner, was able to interpret their dreams, and his interpretation came to pass just exactly like he said. And what he said was that the butler uh, was going to be freed and the baker was going to be hung. And that's what happened. So when they got out, Joseph said to the butler, by the way, that was the cupbearer, that's the meaning of butler. He drank before the Pharaoh did, in case somebody was trying to poison the Pharaoh, he drank whatever the Pharaoh was about to drink. And Uh, Joseph said to him, when you're back in Pharaoh's court, remember me and tell him my story. I'm here uh, unjustly. I I didn't do anything to get here. And the text tells us that the butler, the cupbearer, got back to Pharaoh's court and he forgot all about Joseph. For two years he forgot about Joseph. Then one day, Pharaoh has a dream, and the butler says, dream, dream. Oh yeah, I met a guy once, two years ago, in jail, and he interpreted my dream, and what he said is, I mean, it was exactly right, and come to think of it, that poor baker didn't do so well, and he predicted what happened to him too. Huh. Wonder if I should go tell Pharaoh. Now, if you recall that story, the butler and the baker apparently did something wrong to get thrown in jail. So I suspect that the butler wasn't too eager to go talk to Pharaoh. He didn't know but what he might not get tossed in prison again. So he decides to go, which indicates he had that much confidence in Joseph, and he says to Pharaoh, I remember my faults. Uh, He's going to admit his faults. As a matter of fact, the word means sin. He is confessing to Pharaoh, I was guilty. Now apparently he didn't do anything worthy of capital punishment, and the baker did, but I think it's interesting. He starts out just saying to Pharaoh, look, I concede that I sinned. Now, 
verse 10. And Pharaoh, when Pharaoh was angry with the servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, that's Potiphar, both me and the chief baker, each of us had a dream in one night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, Potiphar, and he told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us to each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. He's saying, just exactly as Joseph interpreted the dreams is exactly what happened. So, uh, <laughs> the uh, butler now tells Pharaoh, and this is, I think, a critical part of the story, I just happened to meet this guy in jail. That might be of service to you, so I'm, I'm going to venture to tell you this. This is a minor event. He met a guy in jail. If you, that happened to you, you probably wouldn't tell it, right? You'd just forget that part of your life. But it's a relatively minor event. So this guy interpreted a dream for me once. Big deal. Now, pick up the story at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and he brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothes, and came into Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said that of you that you can understand a dream and interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not for me God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. All right, it says quickly. If the Pharaoh commands to bring Joseph, you do it quickly. Joseph was no doubt dressed uh, in uh, shabby clothes in prison. He hadn't shaved. Uh, so the text tells us in verse 14 that before he went to Pharaoh, he cleaned up. You didn't want to go looking like a homeless or a jail bird uh, before Pharaoh. So he cleaned up. He shaved, changed his clothes, got to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, it's real simple. Uh, I have a dream, and they say, you can interpret it. What do you say? Notice what Joseph says. He says, God, verse 15, 16, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. In other words... He says, look, I don't want to take the credit for this. God gave you the vision, the dream, and God will give you the answer. So he immediately points to the Lord. The Lord is going to do this. So, verse 17, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in a dream I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly, seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, that is thin. Such ugliness I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And those thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven of the fat cows. And when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning, so I woke up. Now, basically, Pharaoh is telling uh, the same story. He adds a few details that weren't recorded in the first uh, brush. Um, namely, he says instead of ugly, they were very ugly. And he adds the thing, I've never seen anything like this in my life. 
lived in Egypt all my life. I've seen thin cows. I never saw a cow that ugly and that thin. That was the ugliest thing I've ever seen in a cow. Never seen anything quite like that. And basically, other than those few little minor details, he told Joseph what had happened. Pick it up at verse 21. When they had eaten them up, no one uh, could have known they had eaten them up, uh, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning, so I woke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads, withered thin, withered thin and blight by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told them to the magicians. But there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, uh, there's not really a whole lot different. There's some minor things. Uh, but what's going on is that Pharaoh is just relating to Joseph uh, the content of the dream. That's all that's happening. Uh, he says seven years, I mean, he says seven cows and seven heads, uh, which is a significant part of the dream. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. That is, you've had two dreams about cows and about crops, but this is all one dream. It's all the same thing. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. That is a very strange statement. All right, I saw these thin cows eat these fat cows. I saw thin grain eat fat grain. First place grain doesn't eat grain, but that's what I saw. And you're telling me that God gave me this dream to show me something he's about to do. I can't wait to hear this. Verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years, and the dreams are one. So Joseph is saying this, you had two dreams, both involve seven, and that's the point. There's only one point to both of these dreams, and it has to do with seven. And let me tell you, the seven cows represent seven years. The seven grains, uh, the stalks, the heads, represent seven years. But it's the same seven years. So we got to deal with seven years. Verse 27, and the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after are seven years, and the seven empty heads blight by the east wind are seven years of famine. So the seven years, the thin cow represents famine. That's his point. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the, fa and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be shown in the land because of the famine following it, and it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. All right, explanation is very simple. There's going to be seven years of famine. There's going to be seven years of plenty. I'm sorry. That's the fat cow. And then there's going to be seven years of uh, famine, and the grain is not another additional 14 years. They're the same. So the, the, the seven years of the thin heads are the same as the seven years of the thin cows, and the seven years of the fat cows are the same as the seven years of the fat heads on the crops. So here's the point. You're going to have seven years of plenty. You're going to have seven years of famine. And God told it to you twice to, uh, 
to establish this is going to happen. Later, the Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established, and that is what is happening here. So that's the dream, and that's the interpretation. That's what God is about to do. God is about to give you seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So that should be the end of the story. But we're only down to verse 36, and there are 57 verses in the chapter. And if I don't start summarizing some of this, we're going to be here for a long time. Did I take a minute per verse? Just about it. So maybe we can reduce the two hours to one hour? That'd still be long, wouldn't it? Let's see if we can hop, skip, and jump through this passage. Look at verse 37. So the advice was good. Uh, I'm sorry, I dropped down too far. Uh, verse 33. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store them up under the authority of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Real simple. Joseph says, uh, let me give you some advice. Here's what's going on. Uh, you need to take these seven years and where we have bumper crops and store the food to carry you through the um, seven years of famine which are sure to come. Uh, so I would suggest, this is very important, verse 33, that you... Select a discerning and wise man. I think if this were happening today, we'd say, Mr. President, what you need to do is find somebody and make him Secretary of Agriculture. And as Secretary of Agriculture, he's going to take all these seven years of plenty and he's going to store it so that when the seven years of famine come, we will have uh, food to eat. Is that a sound principle? Is that a good idea? Yeah. Should you save for a rainy day? Retirement? Famine? That is a sound biblical principle. It is clearly stated in Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O oh, you sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little slumber and a, a little sleep and a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Very clearly stated, so you gather in the summer for the winter. The concept of saving money is solidly biblical. It's in the book of wisdom called the book of Proverbs. So it's significant that back in Genesis chapter 41, he says, choose a wise man. A wise man would know that you've got to save when there's plenty because there's coming a time when there may be poverty. So that's what he did. Only what he did is this. Now we're down to verse 37. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, I'm not sure Pharaoh understood that this was the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think what he recognized in Joseph uh, was uh, a wise person, and 
he attributed that to God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people. You shall be ruler according to your word. Only in regard to the house will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. This is remarkable. He didn't get appointed Secretary of Agriculture. He got appointed Vice President. I'm the only one more powerful than you in all the land of Egypt. And everybody is going to bow their knee to you. You are going to have all the authority in the land. He becomes a virtual dictator. He gave him a signet ring. That was clearly the ring that indicated his authority. Gave him a gold chain around his neck, indicating his authority. And nobody could do anything without Joseph's permission. So here is a man who has gone from prisoner to vice president just because he met somebody in jail. And I submit to you, the meeting of somebody in jail was a minor event in his life as compared to all the other things that happened to him and did happen to him later. And yet it was that seemingly insignificant encounter in a jail cell that led him to be, what, vice president. Overnight, he spent two years rotting in that jail, and then, bam, all of a sudden, he is promoted to second in command in all of the land of Egypt. Now, we're going to have to hurry along. Verse 45 tells us he got a wife. And what is significant about that is that she was the daughter of the priest in the city of On. Uh, that meant he not only was given political authority, he was given social standing. Uh, his wife was the daughter of the priest of the city of On. On was the well-known center of the worship of the sun god, Re. It was 10 miles northeast of modern Cairo. The high priest of On held the exalted title of greatest of the seers, that is, prophets. Joseph thus married into the elite Egyptian nobility. So he not only had political standing, he was married and had social standing as well. So, God permitted this. Now, you remember, they were not to marry the Canaanites. Remember that? So here he is marrying an Egyptian. So, huh, what do you make of that? Well, Pharaoh ordered it, apparently, and God permitted it. Now, in the cases of the Canaanites, when they married a Canaanite, the Canaanites led them off into idolatry. But apparently that did not happen when Joseph married an Egyptian wife. As a matter of fact, he had two sons, and the passage goes on to tell us, Manasseh and Ephraim. And apparently he trained them to serve the true and living God because they became part of the tribes of Israel. Somebody said, only a man like Joseph, schooled in adversity, schooled by adversity in sorrow, 
could meet a sudden elevation like this without pride and self-exaltation. His rigorous training enabled him to encounter success without succumbing to its banishments. So, he did it. He had these sons, and they did not serve idols. Now, I've taken us all the way down to verse 52, the wife and the children. But let's get back to the story that's the main plot of the chapter. And we need to pick it up at verse 53. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, not just Egypt, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over, and all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouse and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the land. This is a pretty severe picture. The famine was not just in Egypt, it was in all the lands. Some have suggested that that probably means it went no far further than what we would call today modern Syria. Uh, at any rate, this was a large-scale, severe famine. But it's not unique. As a matter of fact, we've had famines like that in the United States. Uh, in his novel, Grapes of Wrath, Steinbeck describes a terrible Dust Bowl era in the United States. He describes the sun beating down on corn in Oklahoma until it withered where it stood. The simple passing of a wagon would stir up dust as high as the fence tops. The wind was so strong they picked up the topsoil and carried it away. The famine was extensive. It covered the entire land of Egypt. But when the people asked Pharaoh for bread, he went to them, and he sent them to Joseph and said, you do whatever he tells you to do. That is, completely comply with whatever plan he has put into operation. So Joseph predicted exactly what would happen, and he was able to save not only Egypt, but other peoples as well from the famine that engulfed the land. That is the story to be continued in the next chapter. See just how significant this was in the life of Joseph and in the nation of Israel. But before we get there, let's just talk about what happens in this chapter. This chapter is telling us the Lord providentially used the interpretation of a dream to put Joseph second in command in Egypt, to give him two sons, and to make him the successful administrator of an international food program. And it all started when Joseph met a butler in jail. That's the way God providentially works. The doctrine of providence says that God works behind the scenes. He hides himself from view, but he works things out to take care of his own. It is God using natural means to accomplish his will. In the providence of God, he trains his children and places them in positions of influence and service. One commentator said, the point of the passage is that God controls the fortunes of nations to protect and provide for his covenant people. Clearly, God is working 
not supernaturally, but providentially. And that is acknowledged. God gave you the dream. God will give me the interpretation. God worked through the dream. And it all came about because he met a butler in the brig. Now, I want to put this in perspective. I think that there are uh, preachers today and believers who get all caught up with the idea that God works supernaturally. So let me ask you a question. Does God work supernaturally? Yeah, yeah he does. Uh, miracles are in the Bible, and there's no getting around that, and I don't doubt but what God works a miracle every once in a while today. I'm not doubting that. But I want to put this in perspective. I once uh, got aggravated at somebody who was hurt by a preacher who promised miracles and it didn't happen. And it provoked me to go study what the Bible has to say about miracles. And one of the things I did was just sort of lay out uh, all the miracles in the Bible. And one of the things I discovered was they don't happen every day in the Bible. Now, if you listen to some TV evangelists, the way they talk, you know, there's a miracle tomorrow. You just uh, send me some money. It's always send me some money. That's the seed faith. You plant that seed, and God's going to work this great miracle. He's going to help you win the lottery. Well, though, if you listen to them, it, it just sounds like the way God, that's the way God works. He works miraculously all the time. Y'all know what I'm talking about? But read the Bible. That is not the way God works all the time. As a matter of fact, if you take the whole Bible and the time period it covers, miracles in the Bible are relatively few. They're there, but they're relatively few. I stumbled across somebody that did a similar study, and he put it together only he did a much better job than I did in saying it. So I'm going to quote him. Here's what he said. He pointed out that miraculous displays of power are used very sparingly by God in his dealings with man. There are only four biblical periods when such miracles are prominent. They are the emancipating miracles in the days of Moses uh, where he squashed Egypt's power and led to the liberation of the enslaved Hebrew people, and in the days of Joshua, which facilitated the conquest of Canaan. So that's the first period, Moses and Joshua. There is the educational miracles that in the days of Elijah and Elisha were intended to recall a uh, wayward nation back to God and to set the stage for the dawning of a complete prophetic era. So that's the second period. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha. He calls the first the emancipating period, and the second the educational period. Then they saw the evidential miracles by which the Lord Jesus sustained his claim to be the Son of God, and by which the early church attested to the message of a reluctant Jewish world. Then there are the eschatological miracles of the book of Revelation, those mighty miracles by which Satan will popularize the beast and the counter-miracles of the two witnesses by which God will expose Satan's Messiah as false. Then he says this, apart from those, there are hardly any other miracles in the Bible at all. All. God usually, God usually brings his purpose to pass by such normal and natural means that only the eye of faith sees that he's been at work at all. It was in this way God prepared for the coming of Joseph. Now, I think that puts it in perspective. Moses lived around 1500 A.D. Uh, B.C. 
the book of Revelation uh, was written in 95 AD, but it's talking about something that hasn't happened yet, at least in chapters 18, or 6 through 18. So, in the Bible, there are only three periods of miracles scattered over 1,600 years. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles. That's it. 1,600 years, and you've got uh, three brief periods. And as I recall, those periods lasted no more than 100 years. At most. At most. Uh, so, my point is, God uses miracles, but it's not the way he usually works. He works through natural means, and it's called providence. He works behind the scenes, but he does it. Our job is to be faithful to exercise our spiritual gift and trust the Lord for the results. That's, again, exactly what Joseph did. He did what he could do, and he trusted the Lord for the rest. There is no telling what God will do. Joseph exercised his spiritual gift in prison and ended up vice president of the nation. So God used a providential means to elevate Joseph, and as we will see in the coming chapters, he is able to save the whole nation of Israel, and God's covenant program in the Old Testament. A little thing. He met a butler in the brig and became vice president. When I got saved, I was 18. And it was my great intent to be an evangelist. You know how, now we don't have evangelists floating around like we used to. Uh, churches held evangelistic meetings once a year. Uh, there were several big name evangelists, the biggest of which was Billy Graham. And that's what I wanted to do. I had this heart for evangelism. I wanted to be an evangelist. You know how hard it is to break into evangelism? What do you have to do to convince a pastor to invite you to come to his church for a week? He's not going to do that unless somebody, you know, told you to do that or recommended you. So I went to college for four years. I then went to graduate school for four more and graduated and was ready to enter evangelism. So I had somebody recommend me to a few. It is very, very, very tough to break into that profession. I didn't have any better sense. So some pastor in Minnesota invited me to speak. And I went to speak for him in an evangelistic meeting for a week. And during that week, he said, we're having a denominational meeting. Come with me to the meeting. So I followed him, and we went to this uh, meeting. And... Uh, I'm standing in line. It was sort of like potluck like we have on Sunday. I'm standing in line uh, to eat lunch and just getting started. And I turned around, and there was the, the friendliest pastor right behind me. His name was Bob Salstrom. I'll never forget him. Bob had graduated from the same seminary I graduated from, so we had an instant connection. To make a long story short, as a result of standing in that lunch line and meeting Bob, who was a pastor, I got invited to speak to that annual meeting of that denomination, the largest region in their denomination, which was all of Minnesota and Wisconsin. I was the keynote speaker, this young upstart and had I not betting Bob, that never would have happened. And of course, now that I was the keynote speaker at that meeting, I got all kinds of invitations, and that got me exposure. And that, well, you know the drill, it's uh, referrals. It's the way it works. All because of some chance meeting. 
in a lunch line. But that's the way God works. He works providentially. And that's the way he works most of the time. Not miraculously, but through some minor thing that you don't think is significant at all. That turns out to be the most significant thing in your life. William Cowper was a frail man. He was a bundle of nerves. He constantly suffered with swollen eyes due to chronic inflammation. He attempted suicide. He spent time in an asylum where in those days contempt and cruelty were the order of the day. Yet through this long ordeal, he became one of England's literary geniuses. It was William Copper who wrote, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footprints in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in the unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his brightest design and works his sovereign will. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Father, thank you for the assurance that you are at work Sometimes we don't see it, but we know you're there, and we see the fruit and the result of those chance meetings. Thank you, Father, for this reminder that you are working in our lives in normal, natural ways that are just as significant if it was supernatural. And come to think of it, it is. Jesus' name, amen.